Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Constitutional Cages, the U.S. as Penal Colony. I got this morning. Now I put on my shoe. I strung my shoe. Then I wiped my face. Our opening song is I've Grown So Ugly by Robert Pete Williams who was imprisoned in the Louisiana State Penitentiary in the mid-1950s. I made a move Don't know what to do I stopped to it forward Start to break and run The rest of our music today is by women prisoners and will come from field recordings taken in the 1930s and 40s from such plantation prisons as Parchman in Mississippi and Angola in Louisiana. It is a sobering thought to consider that these songs must have been recorded at the point of a gun. In 1935, Parchman prisoner Mary Carter changed the lyrics of the blues classic Catfish Blues to highlight how women's blues differed from men's. If I were a catfish swimming deep down in the sea, I could have all these parchment men fishing after me. When a woman takes to the blues, she goes to her room and hides. And when a man takes the blues, he catches a train and rides. The female population at Parchman was small. Out of nearly 3,500 prisoners in 1935, just 26 were women. During the Depression years, the women prisoners numbered between 20 and 60, a fraction of the total which rose from about 3,000 to as many as 6,000. But females in the convict labor system were young, literate, and mobile, and their crimes, as recorded, were generally violent. I was prompted to begin this way because of what today's guest Shane Bauer wrote in his investigative piece, My Four Months as a Private Prison Guard, which was published in Mother Jones in the summer of 2016. Quote, like the prisoners, the majority of the correctional officers at Wynn are African-American. More than half are women, many of them single moms. In the book that grew out of that Mother Jones article, American Prison, a reporter's undercover journey into the business of punishment, Bauer weaves a deep reckoning of his experience as a guard in a for-profit prison together with a thoroughly researched history of prisons in America from their origins in the decades before the Civil War. We can't understand the cruelty of our current system and its place in the larger story of mass incarceration without understanding that history. Private prisons became entrenched in the South as part of a systemic effort to keep the African-American labor force in place in the aftermath of slavery. But perhaps a more important lesson here is that what is private is also public. There can be no private for-profit prisons without the support of and funding by the state. American Prison takes us through Bowers' hiring and employment at Wynn Correctional Center, a private prison 10 miles southeast of Winfield, Louisiana, operated at the time by CCA, Corrections Corporation of America. CCA has since changed its name to Core Civic, moving from the shadow of an acronym to the fake sunshine of an innocuous-sounding name. Think of the private mercenary corporation Blackwater becoming Z, and then only to change its name a third time, or tobacco giant Philip Morris becoming the Altria Group. 
But perhaps there is truth in this name. The penal colony might be the truest description of what's at the core of capitalism, the abusive economic system we blindly praise, as well as the so-called justice system we revere for its purported blindness. Core civic sounds about right. And now, Constitutional Cages with American Prison author Shane Bauer on Interchange on WFHB. Baby, listen me! Oh, baby, listen me! Shane Bauer, thanks for being with us on Interchange. Thanks for having me. Hey, before we get started, I wanted to alert local listeners here in Indiana that the company you investigated, CoreCivic, formerly Corrections Corporation of America, operates the Marion County Jail Number 2 in Indianapolis. That appears to be the only one, though it looks like there were attempts to uh, start an immigrant detention center in Goshen. Uh, and Shane, I think it's interesting that the warden there is a career CCA um, uh, employee starting out as a CO, like you do yourself in your mm. book as well. He's been there for for, uh, I guess since 1998, he's been with CCA or CoreCivic now, uh, going from correctional officer to assistant shift supervisor, shift supervisor, assistant chief of security, all the way up to assistant warden and now warden. Um, so that's the path you could have taken, Shane Bauer. <laughs> Possibly. <yeah. laughs> that's what they that promised the, you, right? That was one of the selling points right, yeah, of the right. position. It's, it was only a $9 an hour job, but they said the CEO himself... Uh, once started as a, a corrections officer and rose the ranks over seven years. So that was kind of the, the golden promise. Now you, there you could have been in Indianapolis with us. <laughs> uh, so Shane, tell us a little bit about uh, why, why Win uh, Correctional Center? Why did, why did you choose that prison? Um, I mean, it was honestly somewhat random. I uh, had filled out an application on the corporate website for a uh, corrections officer, filled it out uh, truthfully. I didn't you know, I gave my personal information, didn't lie in the application. And, uh, you know, at the end of the application, you click box, the box next to the prison you want to send it to. And I just kind of checked a handful of them. And uh, I got phone calls from several uh, within a couple of weeks. And one of them was was Wynn in Louisiana. Um, Wynn was, uh, happened to be the oldest, oldest uh, medium security prison in the country, um, held about 1,500 prisoners. But really... There was very little news about it. I tried to, you know, look into it. There was nothing uh, that kind of stood out about it, um, and I partially chose it because I was also interested in uh, the Louisiana prison system itself. Aside from the private aspect, uh, it hold it at the time had the the highest rate of incarceration in the entire world. Yeah, is it uh, is has it lost that distinction? Uh, I think um, it's now second. Uh, I believe it lost to Oklahoma. I, I might be wrong about that. but it's, <laughs> Well, it's uh, important it's, that another U.S. state wins. Right, right. Yeah, there's some serious winning in the cor- correctional field. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing book. I wanted to thank you all out of the gate for, for the book and for the investigative reporting as well. Um, it's, it's an eye-opener. I think a lot of people who do know that prisons are bad places don't quite understand much about them, right? So it's important to get inside it. And you say in the book it's a difficult thing to actually get inside prisons, especially for-profit prisons. Other than being convicted, of course. It is, yeah. I mean, I had been writing about prisons for a few years and was kind of always frustrated with the how difficult it was just to get basic access to prisons as a journalist. Um, generally, you know, I visited some prisons. You get kind of like a half-hour tour, 
Um, and that's about it. And getting, uh, you know, real data um, from prisons is, is also difficult. I mean, we have public access laws, public records laws in every state, but often you have to sue the state to get them to comply. And with private prisons, um, it's even more difficult because these are not uh, these are private companies, so you know you don't. We don't have the same same rights of um, of access to information that we do uh, with public institutions. Mm. So uh, it isn't, as you say, easy to get in in there, and so you have to go undercover in a sense. Now you talked about being a journalist, and and also saying at the beginning that you you didn't hide anything or you didn't lie on an application. So part of the the book's uh, opening talks about the way in which, as a journalist, you have to go about being undercover, how it can be up on the up and up. There's a there's a long history in the U.S. of undercover journalism. It's only you know in the last couple of decades that it's become more rare. Um, and one of the main reasons it's become more rare is because of, of lawsuits. Um, there, you know, have been um, situations where uh, reporters have gone into cover and were later sued uh, because they lied about something. Um, and so, you know, I had to be very careful, uh, not only for, for the kind of ethical reasons, you know, journalists shouldn't lie, but also so that... Um, you know, the, the company had no uh, basis uh, to try to sue uh, me or Mother Jones and, you know, um, kind of put a kibosh on the reporting mm-hmm. itself. Uh, this is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Shane Bauer, a senior reporter at Mother Jones and author of the new book, American Prison, A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment. Now, Shane, you've got in this particular article, you've got multiple YouTubes there of you uh, you sort of doing your own triage, I guess, with yourself after a day's work or uh, showing you talking to the camera about the, the process. And, uh, you know, you got to say at the beginning that there's no way I would have thought of you as a prison guard. There's no, was, what was that? There's no way I would have looked at you and said, that guy should be a prison oh. guard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, there weren't really uh, qualifications for the job. You know, there's certainly no uh, no requirement that you, you know, have to be a huge guy to be a prison guard. There were, uh, you know, a lot of retired, um, you know, men, very out of shape, a lot of kids right out of high school. Um, a lot of single moms that were prison guards. It was really just, you know, whoever would accept that job for nine dollars an hour had it. They they actually told us in training. The head of training said to us one day, uh, "If you have a valid driver's license and you're breathing and you're willing to work, then we're willing to hire you." <laughs> so, well, that's one of the points of of the book as well, or one of uh, one of the points of our, uh, I guess, prison economic system. Right there, there are very few jobs in a lot of these areas prisons are in. So, in Winfield, there's a Walmart and there's a prison and a lumber company. Is that right? Right, and uh, there's. I remember. I happened to be working there when Walmart uh, rose its wages across the the country, and my you know main work partner told me about it that morning. We're walking into the prison at like six in the morning, and you know he's saying, "Hey, they just rose, I don't know, it was fifty cents or something at Walmart, so it might be something to consider because you know the the prison was bare, was just kind of neck and neck with Walmart wages." Mm. Now you you may not look like a prison guard, but you've been a prisoner in the past, right? Tell us a little bit about that experience. Uh, I spent uh, two years in a prison in Iran. Uh, I had been living in uh, Syria, where I was working as a uh, a freelance journalist um, in 2009, and took a trip to Iraqi Kurdistan, 
with uh, three friends. And um, it was really, I wasn't even reporting. We were there for a week. Uh, it was an area that was actually considered safe for visitors. There was a small tourist industry. Um, it's kind of a almost a separate country from the rest of Iraq. And uh, we went to a, a local tourist site, a waterfall area where there were Kurdish families camping. And we uh, went for a hike up a trail and came near the Iran-Iraq border unknowingly and uh, were beckoned by a couple of soldiers who we thought were Iraqi Kurdish soldiers, but turned out they were Iranian. So we were detained and uh, spent, uh, two of us spent two years in prison, one spent one year um, months in solitary confinement, uh, interrogation. You know, we were held in a political prison with um, a lot of pro-democracy uh, activists. Um, and then, uh, when I was released, I came back to the U S and really, I thought I'd go back to the Middle East. The Arab spring was then underway. Um, but there was a big hunger strike happening in California prisons about the use of long-term solitary confinement here. Uh, and I learned that we had people in solitary for 10, 20, 30, even 40 years. And, uh, I just kind of jumped into that uh, as my first kind of investigative project after I got out. And then from there, just uh, um, got pulled deeper and deeper into the U.S. prison system. Mm. It's uh, one of those things that's kind of impossible to put your head around, right? Um, that people are in solitary confinement for such a long time. And of course, nobody knows that other than maybe a few people that, that still uh, see them as family or friends or, you know, that's a long time. And I think life goes by you then. They're just people rotting in jail. Yeah, we have about 80,000 people in solitary. It's crazy. It's just crazy. It's one of those one of those things that your book brings uh, light to is just kind of the insanity of the prison system, right? The insanity of these places, uh, when in particular seems like a terrible one uh, and worse than others, but they're they're probably on a scale, right? A scale from bad to worse. Yeah. Yeah. So the one of the things that, um, you know, was an interesting part is trying to say, what was my prison experience like? you know, in the Middle East with what I'm seeing a prison experience be like here in Louisiana? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think they're, they're hard things to compare. They're very different uh, mm-hmm. places. That was in a political prison. This is a, you know, a, um, a medium security prison run by a private company in the U.S. Um, but they were connected for me personally, just having been a prisoner and then being a guard was uh, certainly a, um, a jarring transition um, and having to deal with I guess, ethical kind of conundrums where, you know, I had, having been a prisoner is kind of a, still a big part of my identity and uh, finding myself in a position where, you know, I had to confiscate uh, cell phones, for example, that I found from prisoners because, you know, they were contraband, where if I was a prisoner, I would have done anything I could to get a cell phone. Um, And, you know, I struggled with some of that kind of, um, guilt and uh really early on had to kind of turn that off you know really just kind of go numb to any any feelings of compunction i might have and it made my job a lot easier but it made me become you know um much more kind of authoritarian and much more of a typical prison guard Mm -hmm. that's kind of why i uh, chose that uh Robert Williams song. It ain't me at the beginning. So yeah. Um, well, let's uh, let's take a break. It's uh, this is going to be Penitentiary Blues, sung by Beatrice Tisdall and Maddie Mae Thomas, and recorded in 1939 at the Mississippi State Penitentiary or Parchman Farm, the oldest prison in Mississippi, established in 1901, the only maximum security prison for men in the state. 
More with Shane Bauer on the business of punishment in the United States of America. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest today via Skype is Shane Bauer, author of American Prisoners, about the business of punishment in the U.S. He worked undercover as a corrections officer, or CO, at Wynn Correctional Center in Winfield, Louisiana, operated by the private prison company Corrections Corporation of America, which has since changed its name to Core Civic. Uh, a, l- a little stat that um, Shane offers in his article about the the job, uh, four months working in a, a, a private prison uh, is that CEO at the time anyway CEO Damon Henninger um, made 3.4 million dollars in 2015 which was nearly 19 times the salary of the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons so uh, a healthy business the private prison industry yeah the, it's a right now a four billion dollar industry the um, core civic because uh, 1.4 billion dollar billion dollar company right now mm, and they're they're enjoying themselves in this new immigrant detention world yeah that um is kind of the big frontier of these companies mm-hmm. uh it represents about a quarter of of course civic uh 
core civics um, revenue and um, about two thirds of immigrant detention centers are now run by private companies. Mm, yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, I think probably near the end of the show, we'll try to cover a little bit of that as well. Let's look real quick, if you don't mind, at the the way that you set the book up, like the way you decided to to bring your pr- prison experience or your your experience training for the job and being inside the prison with the history of prisons in the U.S., which are both for for profit, even if they're private and uh, or public they're they're you find out that they're generally uh, intentionally needing to be for profit yeah uh, after I was undercover wrote an article from Mother Jones about it and was thinking about writing a book I uh, start kind of digging deeper into just the history of these companies and kept finding myself going back further and further and realized that really the story started before the American Revolution and uh, our very first penitentiaries were um, intended to turn a profit. And really just in the very early uh, beginning part of the 19th century, prisons in the U.S. were were making money uh, for states. Pr- to be a prisoner uh, meant that you were laboring for uh, private contractors. Um, prisons were, were essentially factories um, where prisoners labored from, from dawn till dusk. Um, and so in the book, I really, uh, you know, trace the evolution of uh, the role of profit and uh, punishment in prisons in particular um, and kind of weave it in and out of the, the undercover narrative. Yeah, the undercover narrative, very tense frequently throughout, but it's odd how even the even the history, you're just like uh, kind of on your on the, the edge of your seat wondering just how these things happen, how they, how they continued to happen. And, and it's not, obviously, the how isn't so hard. I guess uh, there are people wanting to make money, and, and there was a way to walk right into it from, from slavery forward. Um, you know, the title of the show today was, uh, you know, I, I call it Constitutional Cages, and it generally refers to the 13th Amendment. Uh, which you know was supposed to be this you know amendment of freedom, right? To to free mm-hmm. the slaves or free the enslaved uh, uh, people in America. Uh, and uh, but the fact is that this freedom amendment really is a loophole for the next stage of slavery in America. Yeah, I mean when when slavery ended, there were a bunch of men in the South who lost a lot of money, you know, because they were rich off off of the uh, slavery system. And they wanted to figure out how to continue it. And um, so they one one man, I'll just use one as an example, was um, a man named Samuel Lawrence James in Louisiana, who, after the Civil War, had the idea um, that, you know, he knew the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, except as punishment for a crime. So he had the idea to... to uh, proposed to the state, which was really cash-strapped, uh, economy was a ruins, uh, proposed that they lease him all of their prisoners, which had happened uh, in the state before the Civil War, so why couldn't it happen again? Uh, the state agreed, and he essentially used the prisoners um, as forced labor. Uh, he bought a plantation called Angola, uh, which is still a, it's a prison today uh, in Louisiana, he moved his family to the plantation, uh, put prisoners to work in the cotton fields, and, you know, just lived a life that was uh, identical to the life uh, that slave owners had been living before the Civil War. Uh, he also would um, set up labor camps where prisoners would build railroads or levees. Um, and this uh, system, which is called convict leasing, uh, was actually 
more deadly than slavery was. Um, the throughout the South, the the system existed throughout the South. The, all of the penal systems were privatized. Prisoners were uh, basically held by uh, private companies. Uh, depending on the state, the average annual death rate ranged from 16 to 25 percent per year. Uh, this is on par with the, the Soviet gulags, um, because unlike slave owners, uh, these uh, lessees that were leasing the convicts did not own uh, the people that they were forcing to labor. They did not see them as investments. They were merely leasing numbers. So if one died, you know, the, the prison system would give them another one and they would uh, continue to to work them and whip them and, you know, torture them much the same way that had had they had been doing um, under slavery. Mm, it's, it turns out that torture is a, a good way to motivate people. It is, yeah. I mean, if you you know look at comparisons of uh, you know free laborers in the South during slavery uh, versus slave labor, slave labor was was much more productive, um, largely because uh, enslaved people could be driven to you know pick cotton faster, for example, uh, because they're you know driven by the whip. Um, they continue to do the same thing with prisoners uh, after the Civil War, and really, really far after the Civil War. Um, actually, Arkansas didn't ban the whip until 1967, mm. um, and you know states were doing other things like uh, Arkansas also was was electrocuting prisoners who weren't meeting uh, cotton quotas. Uh, it was common to to hang prisoners from handcuffs or or their thumbs or um, you know leave them in a solitary cell naked for a month. Um, you know, there are many ways to kind of force people to to work as fast as they possibly could. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Shane Bauer, a senior reporter at Mother Jones, author of the new book, American Prison, A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment. We're talking about that business of punishment right now. Um, you know, it's one of those things, too, that, that we kind of have to look a little bit about, uh, I guess, compare a little bit maybe the North and the South in some ways here, right? There's a mm-hmm. sense that in the North you begin, or at least my understanding of it is with, uh, with uh, people like Benjamin Rush, that there's there's an actual element of reform. Now, it's how we couch these things, you know, and how we think of what we're yeah. reforming and how we're reforming are different different for people, I suppose. But, you know, Russia is a complicated figure. People tend to revere him. He's a, a signatory on yeah. the Declaration. He's a, one of the first education uh, gurus, I suppose, in, in the country, but a man who I think imprisoned his own son who had mental capacity, you know, mental issues and actually put him mm-hmm. on the ground. Uh, put him in a prison underground. Um, so this is a complicated fellow, I suppose, but a guy who also believed that the prison should make profit. Yeah, I mean, he he was actually a part of the very invention of the penitentiary, which was was an American invention to be uh, penitent, right? Yeah, yeah, and you know, the American Revolution. What, one of the things that uh, people were revolting against was the British. Uh, system of of punishment you know it's seen as, as brutal people could be hanged for for theft or pilloried um and the the revolution uh abolished the death penalty for for everything except uh, murder or treason uh and instead people would be put to uh work in public you know working on roads and uh work that was uh seemed to be uh you know kind of shameful mm-hmm. And uh, Rush was concerned that the uh, having people work in public would actually uh, threaten American capitalism. He 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 worried that, like in the South, where where white people uh, would refuse to do the same labor, type of labor that slaves did, that labor itself uh, in the in the North would be denegraded uh, right. by this uh, by 
this kind of um, convict labor that, that people were seeing. So he proposed that uh, we create a house of uh, repentance where uh, prisoners w- would still be laboring and they would be laboring at a profit to the state, but behind the wa- behind walls so right. people wouldn't see them. And that was really the, the first prison uh, was in Pennsylvania that was kind of uh, based off that Ru- Benjamin Rush uh, proposal. Hmm, was that the Auburn model or is that something else? No, this was uh, Walnut Street, and mm. Auburn, actually, uh, what's what's interesting is that uh, there were several states that uh, built penitentiaries after this first uh, Walnut Street penitentiary, but they, uh, one, were not generating the revenues that Rush had promised, and they were also uh, tended to be very violent. Prisoners would burn down wings of the prisons, burn down the factories, and several states were debating uh actually just getting rid of them. They were saying it was a failed experiment, penitentiaries are not working. And Auburn, at Auburn uh, in New York, there was a a captain who tried to kind of um, revamp the prison. Um, One thing he did was he convinced the state to reinstitute the whip, which had been banned by the American Revolution. And he also uh, convinced private uh, contractors to um, contract with the prison. And he instituted a regime where prisoners were not allowed to speak. They would labor from dawn till dusk. If anyone spoke, they'd be whipped. And that prison uh, started to turn a profit. And so rather than abandoning prisons, other states uh, copied the Auburn model and started uh, taking out loans and building prisons and paying those loans back within a few years uh, from the prison labor. Mm. Now, I liked uh, especially that uh, one of the, I, I guess, the uh, lords of political political science in America that everybody l- loves to to bring out their, their book um, by Alexis de Tocqueville, right, Democracy in America, he was uh, pleased or at least impressed by the Auburn system, yeah, and pleased with how the lash worked. Yeah, he he was a definitely a proponent of whipping. He uh, said it was a superior superior method because uh, the labor would be unbroken. A prisoner could be sitting at his work table, and someone comes along and whips him, and just he keeps on laboring. Keeps on working. Gotta love that uh, democracy in America. There you go. Um, so let's take another break. Here's "Gonna Need My Help Someday," sung by Eleanor Boyer and also taken from field recordings at Parchman Farm. When we come back, we'll talk more about the history behind these penitentiaries and maybe turn towards looking at uh, T. Don Hutto, another of maybe our modern slave masters. When the sun rose this morning I was lying down on my floor I was dreaming in Holland Baby, please don't You're gonna need my help someday. Oh, that's all right, baby. You're gonna need my help someday. I said, take me back, baby. Show me one more time. If I don't do it, bring my permission. Say, I've been 
Support for WFHB comes from the Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history and community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post. Writers with a voice. Photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. You're listening to Interchange here on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Constitutional Cages, about for-profit prisons in America, and I'm speaking with Shane Bauer, senior investigative reporter at Mother Jones, author of a new book, American Prison, about the business of punishment in the U.S. We talked a little bit about the, uh, excuse me, before the break, about the history of uh, prisons and prisons for profit in the U.S., really beginning uh, in the Revolutionary War period with uh, some of our our greatest, uh, I guess, uh, founders of the country uh, thinking that uh, this is a good way to, to well, I guess to make money, I think initially you imagine Rush wants us to be penitent, uh, to to reform people in such a way, but reform them so that they make money for us as well. Now, I do want to move forward, and I, there's a lot to get to, and, and we'll run out of time, I know, Shane, but I do, I like so much the, the history parts of the book that I do want to talk about one more aspect of that, if you can, and it's really um, the TCI company, the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad <clears throat> Company, the largest steel enterprise in the South at the time. Yeah. Uh, um, this company was uh, using prisoners uh, to work in its coal mines. Uh, it initially started using them uh, as a way to, to break strikes and to break up uh, minor unions um, and to keep wages low because the, the miners knew that if they went on strike, the company would bring in uh, convicts uh, to labor for, for cheaper. Uh, they uh, were using prisoners in mines in Alabama and Tennessee, uh, thousands of, of prisoners. Uh, and actually in Tennessee, the Tennessee was the first state to end convict leasing because there was actually a war between the state, uh, and organized labor. Uh, the state was, was going to war essentially to defend the company. Uh, the laborers had gone on a strike because the company was trying to force them to sign a, 
uh, a contract that would take away many of their rights, and they start uh, storming the mines and, and actually freeing prisoners. Um, and the state had to uh, keep uh, its militia there at the mines to guard the prisoners, which made uh, made it so that the, the actual cost to the state of, of running this convict leasing system uh ended up being uh, more expensive right. you know it wasn't it wasn't saving money anymore right. it turned turned out to be you know when things start to cost too much money it's time to have some some moral strength and, <laughs> and and abolish things that don't make you money anymore and also happen to be terrible but the um, the the name you actually I guess it's Arthur Collier you talk about in the book mm-hmm. uh, so it's one of the questions I often sort of have to have to confront in in reading history is that you think of these fo- massive forces of history as, as happening right but the there are always names that we talk about, right? So we talked about Benjamin Rush. We're going to talk about T. Don Hutto later. Um, we talked. You talked about Samuel James, I believe it was, and Arthur Collier is another name, another person that we attach these these awful things to. Do you have a sense? I mean, Arthur Collier was was he the he he like had slaves as well and sold his plantation and then leased leased it back to the state. Is that what happened? Yeah, and he kind of saw. You know, the Civil War ended and he was one of these people that was kind of in a way seen as a progressive. He wanted to industrialize uh, the South, especially Tennessee, where he lived. Uh, and he couldn't see, you know, a way to do this without forced labor. These guys' minds were was, were so stuck in slavery um, that they just thought it was, it was an essential part of uh bringing industry to the South, you know, through, through mining and, and, uh, railroads. Um, and they saw the, the unions as kind of a, a great evil and an impediment, uh, to that goal. Hmm. And that's what we labeled progressive at the time. Yeah. And also the, um, you know, the later after convict leasing, there were, uh, a lot of prison laborers using the roads, you know, the, mm-hmm. the infamous chain gangs and, uh, this, one of the biggest advocates, uh, of, the use of chain gangs on roads were what was called the good roads movement, which was initiated by, um, cycling enthusiasts, you know, people that, uh, (laughs) thought we needed roads, um, uh, you know, so that we could get around on our bicycles, uh, and also so that there could be, um, you know, more, uh, trade in the South that helped develop the South. Um, and they kind of came up with this whole narrative to justify it that actually, you know, having prisoners labor outside was good for their health and they enjoyed it. And, um, you know, they justified essentially keeping these people in labor camps where they were, again, uh, tortured for, for mm-hmm. not meeting work quotas. But they're working. It's good for them. Right. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Shane Bauer, senior reporter at Mother Jones, author of the new book, American Prison, a reporter's undercover journey journey into the business of punishment. Let's move forward. Obviously, there are many, many, many horrifying stories, and we continue to tell horrifying stories. And your book tells modern-day horrifying stories of, of basically the same kinds of torture, or at least to some degree a similar thing. You stress throughout that prisons are for profit, whether run by the state or by a private entity, and you keep talking about the way the state is involved in in funding these things, how the state wants to make money, how the state sends out the militia. So it's very clear that even when we talk about private for-profit prisons and we talk about state prisons or federal prisons, we're talking about entities that are that are not uh, n- neutral actors. The, you know, 
know, they're, they're all sort of working to, to make money off of people for the most part. Um, and this is kind of a collusion of government and business in, in capitalism. One nasty character you highlight in the book is T. Don Hutto. I call him nasty. I don't know how not to. Hutto seems like a living link between a plantation master and a new era of immigrant detention. It seems like you might want readers to think of Hutto kind of along the lines of Samuel James a little, James a little bit. Yeah, there, there's a lot of similarity. Um, Hutto started his career at a time, it was kind of during an era that was uh, uh, the era following convict leasing, where states essentially cut out the middleman um, instead of leasing their prisoners to private companies and getting a share of the profits. They bought plantations of their own and uh, put prisoners on the plantations uh, doing the same work, uh, but all of the profits would go into state treasuries. Um, and Hutto, uh, started his career, uh, as a warden in 1967 in Texas at the Ramsey plantation. Uh, this is a plantation, the size of Manhattan, uh, where inmates would, uh, spend their waking hours, uh, picking cotton. Hutto lived on the plantation with his family. Uh, they had, uh, houseboys. These are prisoners who would, uh, serve them in their, in their house, take care of their kids. Um, and Hutto did such a good job at this that he was hired uh, to run the entire system of, in Arkansas, which were uh, consisted of, of two plantations. Hutto, uh, this was a you know state run um, state run plantations, but Hutto ran them at a profit. Um, he would be later be uh, condemned by a, a judge for for torturing prisoners uh, who didn't meet uh, quotas, um, and he left, he was really the last person to run a public prison and a profit. Public prisons today cost tons of money. They do not make any money. Um, and Hutto left the plantations in Arkansas in the mid seventies, uh, at a time that the prison population across America was skyrocketing, uh, which it continued to do for several decades. Um, states were struggling to build prisons fast enough prisons uh, became a major burden. Uh, they stopped making money for the states. And it was in this time that Hutto was approached by a couple of businessmen who uh, suggested that they start a company um, which would uh, make money from prisoners, but not from their labor. Uh, instead, the prisoners themselves would be the commodities mm-hmm. and states would uh, pay them, you know, a per diem rate for each prisoner. So, you know, um, every day, they they held a prisoner. They would uh, make you know at win it was thirty four dollars a day, and uh, they would trade the company on the New York Stock Exchange, and uh, that was the the beginning of the Corrections Corporation of America. Mm. It's just uh, again one of those shocking things that you I guess you're surprised uh, in some level, but not surprised as well. Um, quickly, if you if you don't mind, talk a little bit about the trustee system as well. This is where inmates are are basically managing. The, the prison for for this yeah. The company yeah when um so angola for example i mentioned earlier uh this is the plantation that samuel lawrence james bought after the civil war in 1901 the state of louisiana ended convict leasing and bought angola plantation from the james family it uh, the prisoners who were there stayed there uh it was but it was then a state prison which it still is today uh, and one of the things that they did to save money was uh, rather than hire guards, they chose certain inmates uh, to use as prison guards. They gave them guns. 
these tended to be the most uh, the inmates convicted of the most brutal crimes, uh, people who they could count on to shoot somebody if they were trying to escape. And uh, they did this in, in Louisiana. They did it in Mississippi. They did it in Arkansas. Uh, and if a, if a prisoner guard would, uh, a trustee guard would, would shoot an escaping prisoner, uh, that trustee guard would be granted an automatic parole. <laughs> uh, prisoners were also used as kind of overseers on the plantation. They would uh, whip other prisoners who weren't meeting uh, you know, quotas. Um, and it was really until uh, about in Arkansas was that that whole system continued until uh, the 1970s. Mm, unbelievable. Now, you know, um, we, this, this really doesn't have anything to do with this so much, but it struck me as you were talking, you know, uh, uh, we've talked on this program before about, uh, um, uh, I'm blanking at it now. Um, uh, Nat, thank you. Nat, Nat Turner's revolt. I don't know if you know, know that. Uh, yeah. right. So Nat Turner, this I, I forget which state it's in South Carolina, I think. But Nat Turner re- revol- revolts, right? He basically uh, has, uh, or as far as we know, he he gets uh, um, uh, enslaved people to, to sort of rebel with him and, and goes around killing mm. uh, the plantation. Um, white people in the plantation, men, women, children, mm. everything, because these are their captors, right? And and he kills them. And and this the the South and this this place in particular is, is so divided on whether this was you know an awful thing to do or whether it was justified and all these things. But I don't understand how we continue. How you hear you know you talk about these things, we hear about these things. You're going to tell us some what's what goes on or what went on or what continues to go on in in, in places like when how we are surprised or how we don't think that that's justified. You know to to have have your life entirely taken from you um, yeah. and, and to be brutalized and to be no one and to have no one and to be charged for your email, uh, 30 cents, uh, you know, to be, to be just used in every way possible by the state and for-profit prisons. Unbelievable. Yeah. When I was actually at Wynn, there was a the unit that I was uh, guarding almost rioted at one point. Uh, they had been kept in their, they were in dorms of 44 men. Uh, they, the prison had been locked down for days and they couldn't, you know, buy basic necessities. They needed like soap. And uh, one day they all said, we're not going to let any of the guards in uh, unless you let us out. And they want, I remember one of the prisoners said, you know, you're treat, you guys treat us like animals. Mm-hmm. We, you just lock us here and feed us. Right. Um, and they, you know, they eventually, got what they were demanding mm. uh, it's time for our final break this is go away devil leave me alone sung by mary james also recorded at parchman farm when we return we're going to talk a little bit more about shane's experience in an american prison stay with us on interchange on wfhb go away Come to fight my just so fully home. 
Wake up, Rosie, tell your midnight dream. Wake up, Rosie, tell your midnight dream. Midnight dream, the Lord is midnight dream. Wake up, Rosie, tell your midnight dream. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Constitutional Cages. We're talking with Shane Bauer, author of American Prisoner, excuse me, author of American Prison, a reporter's undercover journey into the business of punishment. Uh, you talked about uh, T. Don Hutto starting out in the 80s with this private co- corporation, CCA. Obviously, the drug war is beginning at that time, right? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of changes happening at the time. Uh, drug war was heating up. Uh, mandatory minimum sentences mm. were being um, uh, put in place throughout the country. Uh, sentence Sentences themselves uh, were um, becoming longer. Um, you know, there there's just a, a huge number of factors that kind of uh, woven together created this uh, prison boom. Mm. Now, Shane, now uh, we're we're this is our last segment. We haven't even talked really about what you did. So let's talk. <laughs> let's use this last segment to talk about your experience as a guard in an American prison. This is again a private prison. This is run by CCA at uh, Wynn Correctional Center. It's no longer run by CCA or Core Civic. They the Louisiana ended that bid right ended that contract right. Well, the the company actually, after I left, uh, a few weeks after I left, the company itself uh, pulled mm. its contract, oh, okay. and uh, the state then basically gave the prison to a, another private prison. Company. Another, another, yeah, another private prison, right? Uh, so yeah. you became a corrections officer, and uh, you had to deal with the fact that one, this is not something you really think you could do, probably, but two, you had a training period that was like thirty days. Uh, so yeah. tell us a little bit about what training was for this kind of really intense, very awful, hard job. Uh, it was. Um you know, a lot of it was kind of uh, an instructor standing in front of us and reading, a, you know, a printout um, or watching some some videotapes. Uh, one of the themes that that kind of repeated itself was uh, had to do with kind of company's liability. Mm. Um, we were told that part of our job was to deliver value to our shareholders. And uh, one day, uh, uh, one of our instructors asked us, you know, what we should do if we saw two inmates fighting. Um, you know, my assumption is we break them up. That's exactly the job of a prison guard. Um, and he said that we were not to ever get in the middle of them and that our job was simply to yell at them to stop fighting. Hmm. That would cover uh, That would cover the he, liability. Right. You know, and we wouldn't be getting uh, in the way. We didn't ourselves have any weapons. All we had was a radio. Uh, and he said, um, you know, uh, he said, we're not going to pay you that much. Uh, uh, he said, uh, what's important to us is we go home at the end of the day, and if, if those fools want to cut each other up, then happy cutting. Mm. <laughs> right. 
Well, you have you have to withstand like a training in dealing with pepper spray and tear right. gas, right? Yeah, yeah. We uh, we we got tear gas. We had to sign a form saying that we you know volunteered to be tear gas. Although we were told if we didn't sign the form, we would lose our jobs. Uh, so. Uh, they, you know, they wanted to tear gas us basically, so we knew what it felt like in case it happened in the prison. Um, Which had happened out. all the time, right? Uh, it pepper spray was much more common. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, prisoners, especially in in the isolation units, uh, would be pepper sprayed if they're acting out. Mm. Um, but we were taken outside, and you know, we all all the, us cadets basically stood in a line, and they, you know, dropped some some uh, tear gas, and we just had to kind of stand there and and uh, breathe it out. Mm, and that's not too easy to do. It's not, no. <laughs> no. So this is, a, this is the, the kind of thing you're preparing to, to go into a prison and having to deal with these, I guess, control mechanisms, right? Uh, and trying to understand how you're going to deal with them yourself, let alone having to deal with um, you know, uh, inmates or prisoners who are, who are reacting to these things as well. And uh, generally, you discover once you get in there that it's a place with very little actual control or discipline or understanding of how to actually run a prison. That they're, Not that there sh- maybe there shouldn't be a right way to do this, but but when, the issue with Wynn in particular seems that there it's just a really poorly run place. Yeah, and the prisoners themselves complained about this all the time. I mean, you know, the, the prison of fifteen hundred inmates would have about twenty five guards on a shift, um, and it was very chaotic. Uh, it was the most violent prison in the state, mm. um, and uh, you know, prisoners were constantly frustrated by the fact that. There were, we couldn't let them outside some days because there wasn't enough staff or their classes were getting cut because there wasn't enough staff. Um, I met a prisoner in the prison who, after I left, uh, committed suicide. And he, I learned later from, you know, looking at his records that he had been uh, protesting. He had been going hunger strike uh, many times to demand mental health services. Uh, he couldn't even get that. Um, and he eventually committed suicide, and at the time of his death, he weighed 71 pounds. Mm. Well, you talk throughout about the, the actual cutting of, of employer uh, employees, right? The fact that there are like two, one, one guard to 176 uh, inmates on the floor or something like that, and, mm. and the, yeah. the cutting of programs and the fact that there's absolutely nothing to do all day in the prison. Yeah, and you know, maybe ironically uh the prisoners would lament the fact that the the old labor programs had been cut mm. you know they used to have to go outside and just uh chop wood or whatever and uh now they're just warehoused you know they're just stuck in these dorms yeah. with 43 other guys with nothing to do it's unbelievable that we're that we're now like lamenting or pining over the good old days of yeah. of prison labor um, right. you know, as your where, as you say, warehousing, the, the, the profit is that there's a body sitting in the cell and not even that, right. All these c- private p- prison contracts guarantee occupancy, right? So the state actually pays yep. for the, the occupancy, whether there's a person there or not. Yeah. The contract for win uh, guaranteed 96% occupancy. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I've been chuckling throughout. It's not because it's, it's absolutely a nightmare. Right. Yeah. And, and on this end of it, as you watch this nightmare and having to deal with the nightmare that people are living in, how do you how do you walk those those halls in that nightmare and looking at people whose lives are nightmares year after year after year after year? 
You know, having spent right. two years in a prison yourself, uh, having tried to understand what that situation's like, how is it that, that, you, uh, that you, you understand this happening all over the country, right? These, these nightmares. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the strange things about that experience was that, uh, you know, I was very critical of the prison in my mind. Uh, I understood that, you know, people were getting frustrated because of systemic issues. Uh, they even guards, you know, uh, disdained the company. Um, I understood all of that. But at the same time, there's this kind of other uh, visceral uh, reality where you're stuck in this situation for 12 hours Um you know, trying to manage, just trying to get through the day, you literally can't do all the things you're supposed to do. And, um, you know, you get caught up in these kind of, uh, these battles that happen in prisons. And I would find myself, uh, becoming obsessed with, you know, these petty issues that I had with prisoners, uh, the longer I was there, you know, even though I was kind of like aware on a, a in my mind that, you know, there was kind of a deeper undercurrent causing these problems. Um, I would still get stuck in these one-on-one. Yeah. You um, were still an employee and trying to do a job. You were a right. person trying to do a job and it put you in that place where you, you say, man, I'm just trying to get through my day. And they're like, well, yeah. I'm a prisoner in here trying yeah. to deal with you taking my right. phone. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as you say in your book, you began to, of course, uh, become the thing that you were, were not quite wanting to become, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I know that went really quickly, and I know we didn't do enough with the the experience in uh, of being a prison guard. But that lets other people actually get the uh, joy of of reading your work. The, again, um, we've been talking with Shane Bauer, that's um, who has written American Prison: A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment. That's out by Penguin Press. Uh, we'll close with another Parchman Farm recording. This is Maddie May Thomas singing Workhouse Blues. Thanks to Shane Bauer for joining us today and for his illuminating book and investigative reporting at Mother Jones. Thank you, Shane Bauer. Thank you. Shane Bauer is author of American Prison, which details the history and business of prisons run for profit. And now that you know these things, you must be responsible. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Executive producer and studio engineer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. I wrestle with the loud black man With the loud on the mountain top I pull the hair black man Strain but strain. Snakes and spiders all begin to bite my poor heart. But let me tell you, baby, they crawled away and died. I wrestle with the house black man. Until they fade up